0: There's an old story of a Quaker who had been a member of various meeting houses and had left many of them in conflict and in frustration and quarreling. He was greeted by a friend in the town square one day and was asked, what church are you a part of now? And he said, oh, I'm in the true church at last. Uh, Inquisitive, the friend said, well, how many are in your meeting house? And he said, oh, just me and my wife, but these days I'm not so sure about her either. (laughs) Now, those of us who have been in churches, we laugh the loudest because we know how true that can sometimes be. Churches have problems. Churches have sometimes seemingly chronic problems, sometimes apparently congenital problems, but this is because churches are filled with people. Redeemed people is certainly what we believe, that if you're part of the church, if you're truly part of the church, you are redeemed. You are to be a believer in Jesus Christ, to be part of the church. We're redeemed, forgiven, but we know that we're still dragging around sinful flesh. Do we still struggle with sin in our lives that we're not yet glorified? And God has been pleased, for whatever reason, to allow us to live in the shadow lands, knowing that we're forgiven and redeemed, but still fighting our flesh, the world, and the devil. And what we find is that too often we yield instead to our sinful flesh rather than the indwelling Spirit of God. Now, we all recognize this, right? We know the stories of the disciples, those guys who walked and talked with Jesus Christ himself couldn't get along with one another. They always had their own agenda. They were debating and and fighting and pushing for the front, as it were. It was almost to the point where it gets comical if you read the accounts of the disciples. The prototype of the church, in a sense, is the nation of Israel under the old covenant. And we know that they had problems as well. Let me remind you in the book of Exodus, we read this in chapter 15. Then Moses made Israel set out for the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? That wasn't the only problem Moses had with his people. You go to the very next chapter and you read this. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. You go over into chapter 17 of Exodus, and you find that as they continue to move into the wilderness, that they get to another place. Water was an issue, and it says in verse 2 of chapter 17, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said, listen to his attitude, he says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? It's part and parcel of living in the flesh. I had the opportunity to be, to be with my sister as we were in Florida. She lives there, and she came down to have dinner, and it made me somewhat nervous because she said, and the elders that I was with, they all wanted to have dinner together. Now, this was not my desire because this was worlds colliding. You understand? I didn't know what stories she would tell. I didn't know what questions the elders would ask. It was best, as far as I was concerned, to keep these worlds separate. But it didn't happen. And, of course, one of the things you think about is all the quarrels you've had and the conflicts you have with siblings. I don't know that anyone has ever had a perfectly peaceful relationship with all of their siblings. You know where the first murder happened, right? By the way, we had a fine dinner together. And it was a glorious trip. Many of you prayed for us as we were. We left on Wednesday. We were all the way in Fort Myers, Florida, for a theological conference, and there were six of us. Um, and I was a little uneasy about that. You have six grown men who are kind of set in their ways, and they're traveling together. And so, uh, you know, it, it was fraught with, with possibilities of conflict and discomfort. Uh, the car we rented was evidently for six skinny people. We found that everyone had their opinion about what to eat, and finally Pastor Roman won the battle, and we had Guatemalan food down in South Florida. <laughs> and I also found that our other pastor, Pastor Dave, uh, doesn't like to take instruction while he's driving. <laughs> Generally, I'm glad to tell you there were a few quarrels, uh, none that I knew of, and what a grateful how grateful we are for a glorious time together. And it was a great time theologically uh, to be pushed and to be challenged about the deep truths of Scripture. But then there's also something great about just being together and traveling together and spending time together. And so thank you for your prayers. But the very issue that perhaps you are concerned about when you go into that kind of situation, or a lot of us have experienced in our histories with various churches we know that conflict and division is part and parcel of being in the church of Jesus. And it shouldn't be that way. You remember what we read in 1 Corinthians last week in chapter 1 and verse 9? The Bible says, that. by the way, you can open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In verse 9, the Bible says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ. And, You have to be honest with yourself. I think we have to acknowledge this morning that the way we interact with one another, the way we, especially when there's tension or there's friction, it doesn't really represent in its fullness our understanding of the word fellowship, right? This kind of communal partnership, the the sharing together that is really the definition of fellowship. Sometimes we all know we fall far short of it. With all of these conflicts... As I've said in my notes, as my forebears in West Virginia would say, something ain't right. Something ain't right. Because this is God's church. In fact, if you understand what the New Testament says, this is the body of Jesus. This is the bride of Jesus. Two different metaphors, but both very important and very meaningful in the value that God places upon a church like ours. This is not just a truth about the universal church. It's not just true about all people who are believers. But God ordains and calls believers to come together into local assemblies. And they represent the body of Christ in this place. They represent the bride of Jesus. And don't you see what that means? Is that God cares about how the body of Christ is treated. God cares about how you and I respond to the body of Christ that we are a part of. And God cares about how His bride, the bride of Jesus, is treated. How we treat one another in the body. And what the New Testament tells us, nearly all of you understand this, but perhaps this is new to some of you, but what the New Testament tells us is that we're all to be an active, involved, committed, and concerned participant and member of a body of Christ. This is part of what it means to be a Jesus follower. As we used to say, it's a reference that's likely lost on a younger generation, but there are no Lone Ranger Christians, or there are no Rambo Christians, or I don't know what a contemporary analogy would be, but we are called into community with one another, and that involves relationship, and therefore when you get relationship with people who are struggling with flesh, it often involves some level of friction or disappointment or conflict, And so here this morning, there are two ways to approach this text. And I'll approach it both ways. You have the responsibility to check your attitude this morning. Now, that's negative, right? But it's appropriate. We come into God's presence. We gather with His people. We want to worship Him. We're looking at a text which has to do with our relationships in life, especially in the body of Christ. And so on a negative level, we have to check our attitudes. But let me also not neglect the opportunity we have to take advantage of the benefits and the glories of being in the body of Christ. The way that God equips us, the way that He uses other people to challenge us, yes, but also to bless us and to encourage us and to minister to us. And both of those truths, the the negative challenge of checking our attitude about others in the body, and also this positive opportunity to evaluate the incredible blessings that God wants to bring into our lives in practical ways because we're in relationship with one another, both of those responses are appropriate to our text this morning. So with all that by way of introduction, look with me in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 And we'll begin in verse 10 and read down through verse 17 this morning. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 10. The Bible says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And so is God's Word for us today. The first thing we need to do as we consider this text and its application to our lives is we need to watch out for divisions in the body of Christ. We need to watch out for divisions in Christ's body, the church. And specifically, the application, the primary application of any New Testament text like this is to the local congregation. I do not deny that there might be applications and implications for the broader body of Christians in the world, but until we get this right, until we get our congregation set, until we get our congregation in obedience and in line, we have very little to say about the world out there, even the Christians out there. We need to give attention to our congregation, just like the Corinth believers were to give attention to their congregation. There's nothing in the book of 1 Corinthians that caused them to fix the problems in the church at Ephesus. Thyatira might have had problems. The church at Sardis had plenty of trouble, according to Revelation. But what we find here is that the people of Corinth were to pay attention to the gathering of Christ, the body of Christ in that city of Corinth. Corinth. And so there's an appeal here, and it's a, it's a pastoral appeal. Do you see that in verse 10? I appeal to you. It's the idea of, of I encourage you, I entreat you. You could almost say, I beg you, Paul is saying. And this is really a context that's laden with emotion. He repeats the words, my brothers, at the end of verse 11. I could take you into chapter 4 and show you the kindness and the burden as he's really calling this church to task, but he does it as a loving shepherd, as a pastor. And even though he uses language that in some ways, as we'll see in the coming weeks, is a kind of a sanctified sarcasm, which is one of the reasons this is one of my favorite books of the Bible. <laughs> but as he, he really speaks to them with a level of sarcasm, he still does it at the same time with a heart of concern and a pastor's heart. And so this is not an opportunity for Paul just to unload upon the church at Corinth, it's a opportunity for him to shepherd them and to shepherd them well and so he says in verse 10 I appeal to you brothers the implication in the ancient Greek language would always be brothers and sisters I appeal to you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions the idea of division is the idea of tears or cracks that there be no no disorder among you in the sense of separation that there be no divisions among you. Why? Because verse 9, you're called into fellowship. You're called into a communal relationship with Jesus, and therefore with the body of Jesus, and therefore with Jesus' people. And so there should be no divisions. That there be no divisions among you, but that you be united. And that word has the idea of being mended, or being put back together. It's used in some cases in Greek of a doctor who resets a broken bone. And Paul says that's what That's what you need to strive for. You've got these divisions, as we'll talk about. But you need to strive for the kind of unity where you're brought back together, where you're restored again. And then the language even is intensified, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And then there's a report from Chloe's people about the divisions, and he describes those divisions in verse 12 and verse 13. Where some were saying, I follow Paul, and some were saying, I follow Apollos, and some, I'm of Cephas, and some, I'm of Christ. Now let's talk about the initial symptoms here. The initial symptoms of this church 2,000 years ago, because nearly all of us can recognize that we've seen similar things happen either in our church or in churches that we're aware of. The initial symptoms is that there were these factions, and the factions were centered around, watch this, the factions were centered, at least in their beginning, they were centered around personalities instead of precepts. They were centered around messengers instead of the message. Paul does very little theological correction in this text and really anywhere in the book of 1 Corinthians. There there are some references to theology and theological error, but most of it was practical application. And these these factions, evidently, had been cultivated around different personalities. Now, early on in the history of the church, the way this text was understood, even though there's a level of speculation about it, let me show you how this text has been understood. This text has been interpreted in this context, that, that in the church at Corinth, there was a group of people that they gathered around in their affinity, and in their discussion, and in contrast to the other people in the church, they said, we're Paul kind of people. Because after all, Paul was the founder of our church. Very likely for many of them, it was from Paul's lips that they had heard the good news that God saves sinners. And it had changed their lives, whether they were Jewish people who they learned that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, or whether they were Gentile people who learned that this Jewish Messiah was the Savior of the world. Whichever their background, they had come to faith in Christ through Paul. And so this seems natural to us. That Paul was the one that had opened the gospel to the Gentiles. And especially for Gentiles, very likely, they said, Paul's our guy. Well, you had another group. And they said, no, 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 no. We're a Paulist people because what we know about this young man Apollos from the book of Acts is that he was an eloquent speaker he was very well educated so his presentation as he would teach and as he would preach it was very impressive it was it was easy to listen to he was very likely entertaining as he taught the truth and this was in contrast as we'll see in a couple of weeks to Paul's very plain approach Paul evidently had just kind of a cut-and-dried, meat-and-potatoes kind of presentation of truth. And so there was a group of people in the church that said, you know, Paul's okay, but, but you know, we're a Paulist people. That, that's, what, that's what the ministry's really about. And then you had Cephas, who Cephas is the Aramaic name for, for Peter, right? And so we follow Peter, and, and these were likely the traditionalists, because Peter had come, he, remember, Peter was one of the original disciples of Jesus. And also Peter had been the one, even though he was involved in the gospel opening up to the Gentiles, Peter was still the one that was clinging to what we would call some of the Old Testament practices, the Old Covenant practices. So it's very likely that some of the traditional people were saying, yeah, yeah, Paul is fine and and Apollos, he's kind of slick, but I, I, I really want to follow Cephas because he's the one that holds on to the old paths. He's the one that likes the traditional approach. And then you've got the fourth group who say, well, that's all fine, but we're Jesus. We had a word for this group when I was in Bible college and seminary. These are the pious gas bags. <laughs> These are the ones who look at everybody else and they say, nobody else gets it, but we're the ones that are truly spiritual. Now, here's the point of this. There is always a danger of it becoming more about the preacher than the one preached. And sometimes that's for good or sometimes it's for bad. Sometimes it becomes about the preacher because you're unhappy with the preacher. Sometimes it's about the preacher because you've come to love his approach. And so you're dismissive of others. I want to tell you that you are so kind to me still in this church in the years that I've been here. That there's always this this encouragement that you give me in my preaching and after my preaching, and how much you encourage me in that. Howard Hendricks from Dallas Seminary would call that procedure where the pastor was at the back door and people would always say, what a wonderful sermon, what a wonderful sermon, and he called it the glorification of the worm ceremony because that can just feed my pride. Now, don't stop doing it, but nevertheless, it just feeds my pride. And I don't, know, I don't know where the people are who don't like it. They've given up emailing me. Nobody emails me, which, that, again, is also fine. <laughs> but this is human nature. It's like we gravitate to the teachers or the preachers. We gravitate to the people that, that had a meaningful uh, influence in our lives. And in this text, so far at least, there's no indication that there are any legitimate theological issues going on. But there were these tribes, and they had these slogans, and they had these divisions. These initial quarrels were rooted in trivialities, but they wouldn't stay there. This is only the doctor's first examination of the patient, the body of Christ. And you know, if you know the book of 1 Corinthians, they weren't just dividing over preachers. They were dividing over sexuality and over marriage and over litigation and over idolatry and over gender roles and over the Lord's Supper and over the charismatic gifts. In fact, these concerns run all the way through chapter 4 and they color the rest of the letter of 1 Corinthians, the initial symptoms, factions and divisions. So what's the diagnosis, at least initially? we'll return here. We have more to say, but go with me to the book of James for just a moment. Turn over to James and look with me at chapter 4. James chapter 4. Because the Bible gives the diagnosis for quarrels. The Bible gives the diagnosis for fights among the people of God. James chapter 4, look in verses 1 and 2. James 4, beginning with verse 1, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on your passions. Listen to the language. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? See, the problem is, is that we love ourselves and we love the world in a functional way more than we do one another and our God. Let me say that again. The diagnosis is that we tend to love ourselves and this world more than we love one another and our God. And so what you have here is you have a divided body, something that is fundamentally incongruent, unhealthy and dangerous. We are called into fellowship. We are baptized not into Paul, but we are baptized into Christ. This is the nature of baptism, by the way. Baptism pictures this. We are baptized into Christ and into his church. And if we're all baptized into Christ, then that means we should all be on the same page. So what happens is when we're in factions, when we're divided, it makes a mockery of church membership. It makes a mockery of the metaphor of the body of Christ. So these factions, they were rooted in temporal, self-centered attitudes instead of a focus on Christ and a focus on one another. It's so easy to do this. I'm so thankful we don't struggle with this anymore, but years ago churches like ours went through what those of us in ministry call the worship wars. And some of you remember the worship wars, where there was battle and arguments about hymn books and about words on the screen and about drums and guitars and all of that. And out of that came an account that was oft-quoted where an old curmudgeon met the pastor at the back of the church on Sunday morning and said, that worship did nothing for me today. And the reply of the pastor was, that's okay, it wasn't designed toward you. And that's the root of all of this. If you think it's about you, you're missing the point. We're here to worship Worship ourselves? No, we're to worship our Lord. You have to ask yourself, what factions are you party to in your local church, whether it's this church or any other church? Is it a faction that's divided over politics or over music or over preachers or over criticism, over what the church offers or what the church doesn't offers? You have to be careful because factions can grow up easily and quickly. Because we focus on what we expect or what we want, instead of focusing, as we're going to find out, on the glorious gospel. Now, what's the initial treatment here? Well, let me tell you what the treatment is not, just very quickly. This text is not saying that there should be superficial agreement about everything. This text is not saying that individual concerns that are valid, that they're always inappropriate. It's not saying that. It's not saying also that there should be this forced uniformity. The, the Bible's not insisting that we all think and say exactly the same things and, and subliminate and, and subjugate our own wisdom and our own opinion because we just have to all get along. There, the, this is not implying or insisting on uniformity on every opinion. The, the analogy in this to think about would be an orchestra. I don't know about you, but I'm not too interested in an orchestra that's nothing but a tuba section, not exactly, we're playing all the same notes in unison. Now I know Will has a trombone ensemble, but they all play different notes and it's pretty cool. But we're not talking about, we're not talking about an orchestra where everyone plays the same instrument and always the same notes, but also you have to recognize in an orchestra with everybody having a different instrument, they need to play on the same page, right? I mean I mean they need to play on the score in the same page. And what this text is saying is we don't necessarily all play the same instrument. We might not even always play the same notes, but we always ought to be better be on the same page. So we need to adjust and correct and shift perhaps our focus, our attention, our priorities from ourselves and our own opinions to our great God and what he has said in his word and what he's doing watch out for divisions in the body of Christ. Now, I want to call pause for just a minute. I want to tell you a story. Most of you know I did a doctoral program years ago. I did it with an individual called Haddon Robinson. Haddon was well known in a previous generation as really the dean of homiletics. He, he had written the textbook literally that many seminaries use for how to preach. And I was able to do a doctoral program with Haddon. He had an illustration that he would use where he was telling us to always make sure that we preach what's in the text. And so he would use a humorous illustration, at least it was humorous to me, where he would give an example of the failure to do that because the preacher just wanted to talk about something. So he would give this illustration where the preacher preached a text and it was on apostasy, and, and so he, the, the points of the sermon were the signs of apostasy and the roots of apostasy and the remedy for apostasy, and then fourth was a word about baptism because that doesn't go. That was just what the pastor wanted to talk about. Nobody laughed because you've never been in a homiletics class, but that's funny if you've ever been in a homiletics class. And I was never able to get that out of my mind this week because that's what I'm going to do right now. I'm going to give you a word about baptism. Be- because that's what Paul does. He incidentally brings in a couple of issues, I think. I'm going to give you three. They're not what this text is about, but they matter. So these are incidental points. that I want to, I'll go through them quickly. But the first one is an incidental word about gossip, believe it or not, about gossip, because you see what it says in verse 11? It says, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Now, this is not gossip, but it brings up the issue of gossip. Gossip is a problem in the church. We don't know anything about Chloe. Uh, She probably, most scholars think she was likely a businesswoman who had business interests in both if Ephesus, where Paul wrote this letter from, and also Corinth. And so there was an interchange from the two cities based on her business. And so it likely is not her children, because if it had been her children, they probably would have been identified by their father. That was just the way the ancient world worked. So likely these are, are business representatives of Chloe who are Christians. You know, we don't even know if Chloe was in the church. But these are business people linked with Chloe, representatives who travel between Ephesus and Corinth, and so they've given Paul a report. And you say, well, that sounds like gossip to me. That sounds like rumors. But Paul didn't treat it that way. He said, I've gotten this report. We need to do something about it. They were not rumors. They were not anonymous. You'll note that. He says who he heard it from. It was a factual report of information. Watch this carefully. This is all I'll say about it that Paul needed to hear. It was a report. You could say it's a third-party report, but Paul needed to hear it. And I would suggest to you that that is likely the most fundamental distinction about what is gossip and what is not. Gossip is when we sit around and we tell stories with no ability to do anything about it just for the sake of hearing or telling the story. And so it's not gossip if someone is completely going off the rails and you tell the elders. That's not gossip. It's not gossip if there's something you can do about something in someone's lives and you genuinely, genuinely have an opportunity to do something about it or legitimately to pray about it. Now, here's where we get a little dicey. Because sometimes what we just say or prayer requests are just an excuse to gossip. But the reality is what's happening here, there's a danger in the New Testament. The old translations used to use the term busybodies. There's a danger where we can traffic in unnecessary information that has, watch this, no edifying purpose. No edifying purpose. Paul receives here information about which he can and should do something. So that's not gossip. But much of what we talk about, I'm sorry to say, Often is. Second incidental word. There's an incidental word here about baptism. This text is not about baptism, but he brings baptism up. Do you see that in verse 14? He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you. He does not say, I thank God that none of you were baptized. You see that? He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. His ministry among them lasted about 18 months, and it was evangelistic. It seemed to me when Paul comes and he plants the church, he's likely the one that's going to baptize them. But he says that was hardly the case at all. Now, I have a theory why that is. I think Paul was trying to avoid the error that many, many contemporary churches have fallen into the idea that to baptize someone, you have to have some kind of special anointing or special role or ordination. That's my opinion. But for whatever reason, we don't know, Paul wasn't involved in baptizing his converts. Just like, by the way, Jesus didn't baptize, but John the Baptist did. But one way or another, what we find is that baptism clearly is not essential. Baptism is not essential, but it is also not unimportant. It doesn't mean that it is not important. Because baptism bears witness to the gospel. So the gospel is the issue. People coming to faith in Jesus Christ through repentance and faith. And then they express that through water baptism as a ritual, as a public event where they stake a claim, where they make a a commitment publicly. And that commitment doesn't change their status before God. It expresses their status before God. It's their profession of their status before God. And so... The baptism is not in Paul's name because Paul says that would be ludicrous. Here's what happened when people were baptized in the ancient world. They cut themselves off functionally from their family and from their friends. They made this public statement, I'm now with Jesus. And Paul says, how ludicrous it would have been for you to say, I'm now with Paul. No, you're baptized in the name of Jesus You you now have a new allegiance. You you are in, here's the word, you are now in fellowship. Not so much with Paul, but with Jesus. And then through Jesus, you're in fellowship with other believers. So regarding baptism, as we often say here, there were two ditches that needed to be avoided. The one ditch is the idea that baptism means everything. Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you except just a handful. The other ditch is to say, baptism doesn't mean anything at all. No, baptism is a command of our Lord Jesus for us to take as believers in Jesus Christ. So that's an incidental word about baptism. I wish Dr. Robinson were still alive so I could send him this sermon. (laughs) A word about baptism. And then third, incidentally, there's a word here, I think, about inspiration. Very quickly, but I love verse 16. It, in most of our translations, it's in parentheses, right? You look at verse 16, it says, I did, not, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. I think you have here an incidental glimpse into the mysterious and miraculous process of inspiration. Paul almost never wrote his letters. He, he dictated his letters. He had an annuensis, a, a secretary who would write the letters, a scribe. And so some think that in the middle of this, the scribe interrupts him and says, Hey, what about Stephanus? Didn't you, didn't you baptize him? And so Paul adds it in. There are some people who think that Stephanus was the scribe that Paul is writing, and Stephanus says, Hey, what about us? We don't know. But here's what I want you to see. When we say that, that we affirm that the New Testament writings and the Old Testament writings were inspired and are inerrant, that is, they are without error, we don't mean to say that the authors themselves were always infallible and without error. Paul's to-do list was not inerrant. His grocery list, even if he wrote it out, it was not inerrant. But in his role as an apostle, as he would as he would pen these letters that God was pleased to retain in what we call the canon, the collection of Scripture, those are without error. But don't you see what this also shows is that the Bible was not, some people hear us talk about inspiration, and oddly there are some some conservative believers who have even endorsed this view, that the truth of the Bible was just downloaded from heaven. It was just literally downloaded like dictated from the Holy Spirit. But don't you see here you've got Paul's personality. If if this was dictated by the Holy Spirit, Paul wouldn't have had to say, oh, by the way, I think I also baptized Stephanas. So here's the mystery of inspiration, and I just want to point it out to you. What we know in Scripture is that God cannot lie, and God has given us his word, but he has been pleased to give us his word through regular fallible human individuals. So as they write, their their humanity shows through, but we believe the Holy Spirit supernaturally protects that which is written from any error. And so here you see a glimpse of Paul's humanity when he says, I can't even remember who else I I baptized. But at the very same time, there's this overriding protection of the Holy Spirit that gives us a product that while it has human characteristics, It is divine in its nature, and that's the nature of inspiration. Let me say it this way. God supernaturally guided the authors in such a way that their humanity shows through, but the result is completely without error and trustworthy in all it affirms. I love this passage where Paul's humanity is just so evident, but nevertheless, God's Spirit is protecting him from error. So those are incidental observations from this text. But again, the main point of the text is we have to watch out. We have to watch out for divisions in the body of Christ. And then secondly, the main point is that we have to watch out for distractions from the message of Christ. We have to watch out for distractions from the message of Christ. And that's summarized in verse 17. So would you look there just one more time? In verse 17, Paul writes... For Christ did not send me to baptize, to baptize, but to preach the gospel. In Greek, it is literally to gospelize the gospel. It's it's a double use of the word. To, To good news the good news. This is what, and notice Christ is the one who sent him. This is his conviction. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power let me read it again the last part of the verse christ sent me not with words of eloquent wisdom that's not how i preach paul said but the reason that's the case is lest the cross of christ be emptied of its power baptism i'm not sent to baptize baptism was an important consequence of preaching the gospel. But the gospel is the primary issue, the good news. And here, what Paul does is he equates, for lack of a better way to say it, he equates the good news of the gospel with the cross of Jesus. It's shorthand for the gospel, the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is a priority. Now think about what we're saying when we say that It's a church word. We talked about church words last week. We, we don't think about it. The cruel Roman practice Of hanging criminals naked on a wooden cross until they suffocate to death, to be shamed and tortured, that is the core and the nexus of Christianity. That's what this text is saying. The cross is not merely a a moral spectacle. It's not some dramatic metaphor. And it's not an inspiring example to us. The cross was a divinely ordained instrument of our salvation. And what happens is that when you understand that, when you think about it, when you embrace it, and as a church, when we own that, it turns the wisdom of the world on its head. Because if you were going to create a religion that would influence the future of the world, the last thing you would do is to make the cornerstone of it a shameful, ugly, offensive symbol like a cross. And the context of 1 Corinthians is the sophistication. That's the only word that I could think of. It kept coming back to me as I prepared the message. The sophistication of Greek society and specifically in Corinth. It was a sophisticated society. They valued wisdom and impressive thinking and philosophical inquiry. And they loved the rhetoric that went along with all of that. And the danger was for Christians, they were still in that culture. And the danger was to recognize that the core message of Jesus was that he hung naked, bloody on a cross, which was an instrument of torture and execution. And they said, you know, that doesn't seem as sophisticated as we want it to sound. So we're going we're gonna, to Paper that over. We're going we're, we're gonna to approach it in a way that's a little more winsome. And it's a little more acceptable to our neighbors. You recognize that in this time, in this part of the world, eloquence was the primary means of entertainment. It was highly valued. Eloquence was the Netflix of their day. That's how they were entertained. By going and hearing an entertaining, clever rhetorically gifted speaker. That was that was a primary source of entertainment in Greek culture. And Paul says, you've got to be careful. Because if you're not careful, you'll think that that's what's needed for the sake of the gospel. And what's needed for the sake of the gospel is the shame of the cross of Jesus. So this was... A concern about outward appearance and superficialities and performance and eloquence over the Spirit's work. It was style over substance. It was personal or human ingenuity and creativity over the Spirit and the Word. And what we're going to see this morning, but what we're going to see over the next few weeks, is that we have to stake our claim in a message that, in and of itself, is shameful and offensive. Because that is God's wisdom, what the world considers foolish. So given this pressure and this tension, it reminds me of the words of Charles Spurgeon who said, some may preach the gospel better than I, but no one can preach a better gospel. Because the gospel doesn't change. By the way, I think Apollos is a great example about this. Because Apollos was sophisticated and educated and eloquent. And yet, you know what we find in the book of Acts? He was also teachable. Go read the story of Apollos in Acts 18. He was teachable. So he, it's not that eloquence is in and of itself a bad thing. It's not that we, should be, we certainly should not be sloppy or ineffective in our communication. But we should recognize that if that's what we're counting on, then we very likely have robbed the gospel of its power. The body of Christ can be infected with this virus of worldly wisdom and it's a subtle worldliness. It's subtle. Preachers and churches, we're called to correct the spirit of the age, not catch it and mirror it and reflect the spirit of the age. And yet, too often, that's what we tend to do. And here's what I think happens. Stay with me for just a moment. I think what happens sometimes, sometimes we're seduced. Sometimes we're seduced by the wisdom of the world. But these days, in all the years that I've been in ministry, I've also seen that sometimes there's this desire. It's a practical philosophy where people say, if we're going to reach the world, if, we're gonna reach, if people are going to listen to what we say, then we've got to adopt these philosophies. We, we, we've got to change our approach. We've got to shift our language. And that's a subtle temptation this is what we've got to do to get people to listen to us is what we say. So we've got, to, we've got to change our position here, and we've got to nuance our position here, and we've got to say things not in a way that will ever cause offense, but we've got to say things to, to tickle people's ears. And then when we do, they'll listen, and then what we can do is we can slip in the gospel sooner or later. And that's a subtle worldliness. And that's precisely what Paul is saying. You're paying so much attention to eloquence and to popularity and and to entertainment that you're robbing the gospel of its power. We have to watch for distractions from the message of Christ. And what this approach does, what this approach does is it shows a lack of confidence in the sovereignty of God working through His Spirit and through His Word. whatever the motive, this worldly, pragmatic, fleshly approach robs the gospel of its power. And what is the cross's power? Well, we're going to find this out. At the very least, it's its shame. It's its offense. So here's what happens. Churches like ours, even churches like ours that think that we're we're paying attention, we can sometimes assume the gospel. And then we What? We neglect the gospel. And then we find we forget the gospel. And then sooner or later, we deny the gospel. Because the gospel's message is an offense to this worldly system. As elders and pastors, we appreciate the opportunity to go to the conference we went to. And you know what we heard that was new? Nothing. Nothing new. But you know what we heard that we needed? All of it. We needed to be reminded again. It was a conference on biblical anthropology, what the Bible says about man and our state and our status. And we needed to be reminded of it because there's nothing really new under the sun. As one of my mentors says, if it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. And what we came away with was a confidence that that we're not, our primary goal is not to be creative. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with creativity. And we definitely want to pursue excellence. But what we came away with was the confidence that we have to watch out and we have to be on guard and we have to stand firm. Because gospel centrality guards against factions and divisions. We may not agree on a lot of things, But we agree on the cross of Jesus, and that's the foundation, and we have to watch for distractions to that. And that's your takeaway this morning. Watch out. Watch out lest you forget the cross. Never forget the cross. Watch out lest we forget the cross. Father, we pray this for our church family. We pray for other churches that we respect, that we love, that are like-minded. We want to pursue excellence. We want to do what we can to be innovative and creative, but never, never at an expense of the shame and offense and power of the cross of Jesus. Lord, I pray for any who are under the sound of my voice this morning and they've never really encountered the glory of the gospel, that you are pleased to forgive us of our sins because of what Jesus Christ did on our behalf, that Jesus took our sins and, and bore our guilt and that we receive, he takes our sins and we receive his righteousness What a glorious gospel, good news this is. And I pray, Father, if there are any here who have never come to understand and embrace that glorious message that you would work in their lives today, I pray, Lord, you would not give them rest until they resolve the matter of their souls. And, Father, for this church, we want to be a loving people. We want to be gracious. We want to, as the great commandment tells us, we want to love the Lord our God and we want to love our neighbors as ourselves. But as we love them, we cannot love them apart from the truth. And the core truth, Father, we believe of the good news we have to share is that Jesus died for sinners on a cruel cross. Teach us over the next few weeks what that means as we continue to dive into 1 Corinthians and help us stay away from factions and divisions as we keep our eyes and hearts focused on what really matters. And pray these things in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.